0: Good evening. Jim Partridge is my name, and I'm one of the elders here at City Reformed. It's good to be with you, and um, good to be able to share God's Word uh, with you this evening. Um, Also, we just had a holiday last week, so uh, if no one wishes you happy 4th of July, Um, I hope you had a great day. It was a really hot day, but it was a beautiful day, wasn't it? And... um, Just like I said in my prayer, we can take the Sabbath for granted. We can take holidays for granted, too, can't we? How many times have you really thought about what Labor Day really means or what Memorial Day means or what Fourth of July means? What are we celebrating? Well, it's what? The Declaration of Independence. And independence, I'd suggest to you, is... Uh, In our country, that is a sacred, sacred word, right? We're declaring our independence from the tyranny of Britain, right? We don't celebrate a day of dependence, do we, anytime? Independence is connected with freedom. It's viewed, I think, universally as as a really positive thing. Uh, When I was a child, uh, we were a cat family, and uh, one 4th of July, we had a litter of four kittens born on the 4th of July. So guess what we named them. Uh, one of them was a stillborn, unfortunately, did not live. But the other three got names. Uh, the first one we called Decky, for the Declaration of Independence. Second one was Betsy, of course, Betsy Ross, who supposedly formed our first flag. And the last one was Indy, Independence. Notice we didn't name this cat Dependence. We named this cat Independence, right? It's a positive thing. Can Dependence be a good thing in any context? Well, uh, for tax returns, yeah, having Dependence might be a good thing, right? If you're a child under 26 with no health insurance in, in our culture right now, being a Dependent, it's a good thing. I'm a physical, therapist, a physical therapist by training, and in my line of work, dependence, friend, is not a good thing. We are striving for independence for our, our patients, to be independent of a wheeled walker and move to a cane, to be independent of having to have someone live with you or, or serve you or whatever. Independence is the goal. And yet tonight, as we come to a text, In the Psalms, Psalm 127, we find a text that actually celebrates and promotes dependence, not independence. My message to you tonight from this psalm is this. We are dependent creatures, and by faith we are to cultivate the dependent lifestyle of Jesus in us by faith. That's my message. Now, you may say, wait a minute, pastor, you just connected Jesus with this psalm that was written hundreds of years before him. How can you do that? It's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Well, let me remind you of what I have put in your outline there. Uh, and I've mentioned this before when we've preached in the psalms. There's uh, one writer suggested there's a four part harmony that we need to think about in the psalms every time we sing them. These Psalms, and we're going to read Psalm 127 shortly, uh, there is the voice of the psalmist themselves. And we will talk about Solomon as the author of this psalm. But then there is the people of God throughout all the ages. Remember that the Psalms were not meant to be read, just read, they were meant to be sung. They were for the entire people of God through the ages. And then the other voice that I really want us to remember is the voice of Jesus, the psalm singer. If you look at aspects of the New Testament, you'll find places where Jesus sung the psalms. We all know, and I've mentioned before, his famous last words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22. But I recently was reading that, you know, the Jews did not have written text. Most, most of them did not. Some of the scribes did. If you had a portion of the scriptures as an Old Testament, saint, what you may have had was the, the Psalter. But so much of their discipleship in the Old Testament, friends, was oral, right? So they memorized the entire Psalter, many of them. And so it's been suggested that Jesus Christ, on the cross, suffering for his people, was actually reciting the entire Psalter in his suffering. And we just got that little snippet of it, Psalm 22, in his passion. So that's the third voice. And then, of course, the fourth voice, we all know, is the the modern-day reader. And that's often all we think about. How does this psalm apply to my life? And I'm not saying that's a, uh, a concern you shouldn't have. You should have that. But remember, there's also the perspective of the psalmist, the people of God and Jesus the psalm singer. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because we're going to make reference to how Jesus' teaching applies to this psalm. Enough introduction. Let's read Psalm 127. Um, I will do that now. And then we will respond with, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 127. A song of sense of Solomon. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord God, again, this is your word. And I pray that this small little psalm, with so much wisdom, would be applicable to our hearts, and that you would enable us to take these words and make them uh, relevant and helpful for us in our discipleship. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, let me just, uh, first of all, give you a little bit of a background to this psalm. Uh, This psalm is called, if you look at the title there, A Song of Ascents. Uh, These were thought to be, this is a little collection of psalms within the Psalter. Uh, The Psalms Psalms of Ascent are from Psalms 120 through 134. Um, They are thought to be uh, kind of road songs for Jewish pilgrims. As they were going up to Jerusalem, you had to go up. To get to Jerusalem, its elevation is over like a mile in elevation. And the three festivals, Old Testament festivals, where Jews were called, faithful Jews, were called to come to the temple and worship. So it is thought that the the title of these psalms comes from that practice. Uh, These psalms tend to be short. In fact, if you look in my little thin line Bible here, you will see almost all of the Psalms of Ascent on two pages. It's a lot shorter than most of the psalms. Five, six, seven, eight verses. There might be one that's longer than that. But they tend to be short. They tend to have repeated phrases, like, my hope is in the Lord. You might hear that repeated in some of the psalms. We're also told that this is a psalm of Solomon. One of only two that are actually ascribed to Solomon in the Psalter, the other one being Psalm 72, which is really kind of amazing if you think about it, because if you read in 1 Kings, we find that Solomon, you know, David, we know, right? David wrote many, many psalms, of which we have uh, the bulk of, or a large portion of our Psalter is ascribed to David. But Solomon was also a writer of many psalms. 1 Kings tells us over a 1,000 psalms. Why do we not have more psalms from Solomon? This is speculation, but I might suggest it's because Solomon's life is not really celebrated in the Old Testament. Many of the themes that we just read about, that Solomon, in his wisdom, he was a very wise man, but he didn't really live out his wisdom. Maybe that's why we don't have that many uh, psalms from Solomon. Just Just a thought. This is a wisdom psalm. If you were going to put it in a category, we might, might put it in that category. Uh, if you look in the first two verses, you see uh, the word vain. Vanity is one of the themes of, of wisdom psalms. Um, there's a contrast, a great contrast between uh, those who are vainly doing something and those who are doing it in the Lord. That's a characteristic of wisdom psalms. How about the structure of the psalm? If you look, it's very clearly laid out in kind of two stanzas, verses 1 and 2, and verses 3 through 5. And some commentators have suggested there's a real disconnect here. He's talking about work and rest, and then he jumps to children. What's up with that? Why Was this written by two different people? What was Solomon thinking here? Well, there is a Hebrew word, if you look in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, the Hebrew word for house is the same word as the word down in verse 3 for children, which could be translated sons. Um, The Hebrew word is it, and there's two senses to that. There is uh, a house as a dwelling, and there's also a house as a family. And so I think Solomon here is, there's an Old Testament wordplay going on here that connects those two stanzas there. Well, what's the central meaning of the psalm? I mentioned this before I read it, and it's this. We are dependent creatures, friends. And by faith we're called to cultivate a dependent lifestyle of Christ in you. Let me just work through the psalm here, Um just these several verses, we're first going to look at verse 1 and talk about our dependence in both our work and our security. We just sung a beautiful psalm. I love the psalm about work. Uh, we're called to work, um, like it or not. It's actually a creation ordinance. God. What that means is God created work before the fall, before sin. Adam and Eve were called to labor in the garden. He gave them good work to do. Work, I'd suggest, has inherent dignity because of that. And we have the accounts of God working in creation. Genesis 1. He's working and we're made in his image. In his kind providence, we're gifted and called to labor in his strength and provision. We read in our scripture reading. From Colossians 3, Paul says, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, Jesus himself, we know, labored long and hard in his work. What was his work? Well, we're told that he was a carpenter by trade. He worked with his hands. But he was also an itinerant preacher and healer. One of his healings, the man at the pool of Bethesda, after that, Jesus said this phrase. He said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, work and labor was, of course, as we know all too well, was subject to the fall. It falls under the curse of sin. And as a result, our relationship with our work is often one of two extremes. We either fall off the wagon in terms of compulsive workaholics, or we may check out in lazy slothfulness. Unless the Lord builds the house, gives us perspective. Friends, we're called to work by faith in a posture of dependence upon the Lord who gives us grace daily to labor for his glory. I hope you'll think soberly about your work, about what you're called to do. I don't know what you do. My work as a physical therapist, I have to say all too often, I'm not thinking about God's calling me as a physical therapist and gifting me. It's a wonderful profession. I just want to say that. I am very thankful for this profession that I've been doing now for 35 plus years. I get to work with people in gaining the ability to walk and getting their life back. It's a wonderful thing. But I often get up on Monday morning and that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking, man, I got to do this, this, and this. And I hate this paperwork and this electronic medical records is driving me nuts. Well, let's talk in verse two. Let's talk about dependence in our rest. For friends, we are called to rest as well as work. And as I mentioned again in my prayer, the Lord himself modeled this for us in the Sabbath. Let me just read Genesis 2 for you. These wonderful verses at the very end of his work of creation. This is what the scripture says the Lord did. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I think the writer wants us us to get the point, right? God had done this work and then he rested. The Sabbath is a wonderful modeling for us of rest. Well, the Lord Jesus also modeled this for us in his humanity, in his earthly ministry. He periodically withdrew from the crowds. He was not always engaging. He often rose early to pray and to commune with his father. And I'd suggest this is not what the psalm talks about when it says it's vain for you to rise early. Jesus was arising for a reason, to commune and to pray. In Mark 6, which I've put most of these references I'm mentioning in your additional scriptures. If you look at Mark 6, 30 to 31, there's this instance in which the apostles who had been sent out by Jesus for ministry, they returned to Jesus, they told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Not check out, rest from the work that I've given you to do. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. This was also a particularly poignant time because the text tells us before in Mark 6 that John the Baptist had just been beheaded. So I think that Jesus knew that these guys were under a lot of stress. And so he called them away. To rest. And you probably, if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that Jesus actually felt the freedom to take a catnap during a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He felt that freedom. He knew how to rest, he knew how to work, and so should we. Friends, I want to say, you and I, we need to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It is vain for you to rise early and to go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You may not know me very well, but you need to know I'm preaching to myself here. Um, I am not, I don't believe, a compulsive workaholic, though my father, I think, was. And I learned a work ethic from him Um, I seek to be conscientious in my work. But when it comes to resting, I have to confess, I have not been a man of rest. In fact, if you talk to my dear wife, she would probably tell you that I have been sleep deprived for most of our married life. I have not viewed sleep as a a blessed gift, the blessed gift that it is. Um, And there's times... Uh, well let me just tell you a little bit more about this. So for years in our married life um, I would function probably on about five hours of sleep per night and if I had a lot going on at work I would set the alarm for when I thought I needed to get up which would be sometimes 3 30 sometimes three maybe. I don't think ever before three but I'd set the alarm and of course that wakes me up but it also wakes my wife up and um, she would struggle to get back to sleep. I would you know, get up to do my work. And so that went on and on and on. And she would plead with me, Jim, you need more sleep. Um, she would quote to me Psalm 127. It is vain for you. And I would quote back to her Second Maccabees 3. Sleep is from the devil. <laughs> it was really a point in which I was not living by faith in that area of my life, clearly. So back in 2010, we were taking uh, together a doctor of physical therapy course at Chatham University. And we had a leadership class. And in that class, the professor challenged us to set a personal goal. So my personal goal became to get more sleep and to yield this area of my life to the Lord. Well, the first thing that had to be done was stop setting an alarm. And I just want to tell you, by God's grace, I still struggle to stay in bed. I I did increase a little bit my time of sleep. Um, I don't get eight hours like they say you should, but I get more than five. But by God's grace, I've not had to set an alarm for the last eight years. The Lord has woken me up when I need to wake up, whether it's work or whatever. And it's an amazing thing. I ascribe it all to the Lord. My wife is very happy that she does not have an alarm going off at 3.30 in the morning. Um, She still wishes i get more sleep, and there are struggles, even as I was preparing to preach. There was one day last week when um, I got up to go to the bathroom. I think it was like 4.30. I'd been in bed for five hours, and I had the strongest pull to think, I need to work on this sermon. (laughs) And then I said, it is vain for you (laughs) to get up early and I went back to bed and the Lord gave me some more sleep. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Romans 14.23 tells us this is a really challenging little verse. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So when we're working in anxious toil it's not by faith. That's sin. We need to repent of that. When we're not resting when we're saying Lord, you don't know my schedule. You don't know what I have to do. Which is essentially what I used to say, functionally. That's sin. And we need to repent of that. Well, let's go down to the last part of the psalm here, verses three through five, and talk about dependence in our parenting and in our relationships. The psalm now takes this famous turn and talks about the gift of children and family. You may be more familiar with these verses than the ones that we first read. I'll mention again, I think that dependence ties together these two stanzas of the song. Let's think about the gift of procreation. Men and women here know that while they are called to participate, there's not a whole lot that a man and woman do to create a child. It is the Lord who's responsible for the gift of procreation. And what he creates in verses 3 through 5, the gift of children, here's a little alliteration for you. Verse 3, it's a heritage, we're told. Verse 4, children are said to be a help to their parents. And in verse 5, blessed means happy, so they're a source of happiness as well. However, we tend to be cynical, don't we? And there's two other ages that you might add to that list if you're a parent. You might say children can be a heartache and they can be a headache. But that's not in the Psalm, so you don't have to believe that. And in fact, I'm going to say don't believe that because what this Psalm gives us is a positive biblical view of how we should look at children. Children are a heritage, they're a help, they're happiness. And yet, that was not that was not the view of ancient cultures. Ancient cultures did not value children. The perspective of children as gifts and parents as dependent stewards of them, I'd suggest that this actually can be a great help for those of you who might be young parents. It was a help for me as a parent. My children are all grown now. But there's these extremes that we need to avoid. There's the laissez faire permissiveness of parenting that some people feel is uh, captured in our culture with Benjamin Spock teaching back in the 50s and 60s that, you know, just let children do what they want to do, they'll turn out okay. Well, you have the other extreme of hovering helicopter parents. And I'd suggest that this perspective from this psalm gives us. A third way, we are called to steward our children, to value them. Let me ask this question. Are there other relationships that could be in view in this psalm? Are these verses just limited to nuclear families? What makes me think of this was a commentary that I read by Eugene Peterson. This is a pastor who has written a wonderful book on the Psalms of Ascent. And in his reflection on this psalm, he points out a link between the teaching of Jesus and our understanding of these verses. And if you look in your uh, additional scriptures, let's look at Mark, I'm sorry, it's Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50. Listen to the words of Jesus. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Could it be here that Jesus is actually expanding our view of intimate and personal relationships within the family of God? and and placing value on the cultivation of any relationship. We know that Jesus as a single man did not experience the blessing of procreation. But by the virtue of his redemption, friends, he now has a multitude of sons and daughters. He has a blessed heritage. And it may be a stretch, but I would suggest that even childless couples, single people, can have a blessed heritage in the cultivation of relationships. My good friend and prayer partner, uh, Tim Geiger, who lives now in Philadelphia, he and his wife uh, have a daughter. They were, by grace, given a daughter. They wanted to adopt um, another child. And they went through that whole process, and they came really, really close to adopting another child. And yet, in the providence of God, it didn't work out. And Tim and Susan had acute disappointment. And yet, as they reflected on Tim's ministry at Harvest USA, and there are men in our church who have been greatly influenced by this brother, I could say to my friend, I said, Tim, you have a huge, huge heritage. You have many, many brothers in the faith, mainly men that he's worked with, who would ascribe their understanding of the gospel and their help with their sin due to his counsel. So, I think the psalm can be understood to speak to relationships in general, not just family, not just nuclear family, relationships of any type. Be that as it may, relationships, friends, can be messy. We are dependent upon the grace of God to navigate relationships. Well, let me wrap this up. Jesus Christ, the psalm singer, lived this psalm in his humanity. He lived as a dependent creature. If you looked at the text again in the additional scriptures from John 5, we see Jesus saying, Jesus the Son of God said this, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I can do nothing on my own. Jesus was a dependent creature. He was dependent in his work of proclamation of the gospel. He was dependent in his resting. And he was dependent in all of his relationships. We see him in the Gospels compassionate with the broken and yet honest with the proud and the unbelieving. And he was totally dependent on his relationship with his father in his response to all people. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are in union by faith with this Jesus and you too can sing and can live out this psalm and grow More into the dependent lifestyle of our Savior. To summarize, we can be dependent on our Savior and rejoice as we go about our work, seeking to glorify Him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We can also rest in faith, knowing who we are. We're the creature, He's the creator. He cares so much for us that he gave us this wonderful gift that takes up about a quarter to a third of our lifetime. It is vain for you to rise early and go to bed late to eat the bread of anxious toil. He gives his beloved sleep. And finally, we can steward our relationships, whether it be your nuclear family or those that God has given you in relationship, work, neighbor, friend. We need to be dependent on him to navigate those relationships, but then we can rejoice in him as we, and with one another, as we look to each other as the gifts of God to us. Friends, you're a dependent creature, and you need to cultivate a dependent lifestyle of Jesus in you. Let me close before I pray with, I just ran across this this morning. It's a little book by um, a 19th century pastor named Andrew Murray on humility. And it's really a wonderful summary of what I've just been preaching on. He says this, as God is the ever living, ever present, ever acting one who upholds all things by the word of his power, and in whom all things exist, the relationship of the creature to God could only be one of unceasing, absolute, and universal dependence. As God, by his power once created, so by that same power, God maintains every moment. The creature looks back to the origin and the first beginning of existence and acknowledges that it owes everything to God. In addition to this, the creature must accept that its main concern, its best asset, its only happiness, now and through all eternity, is to present itself an empty vessel in which God can dwell and demonstrate his power and goodness. The life God gives is not all at once, but moment by moment, through the unceasing operation of his spirit and mighty power, Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is the first duty of the creature and the root of every good quality. Would you pray with me?